<laughs> yeah. I'm John, I'm Paul, I'm George, and I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. And Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Ah, uh, yes, welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi LaPrette. Thank you for tuning in. For those who don't know me, I've hosted New England's Breakfast with the Beatles for, gee, 30-plus years. I've been on the radio in Boston for over 40 First generation Beatles fan, and my my co host is the celebrated Beatles professor at Suffolk University. He's been teaching freshmen about the Beatles for 20 years or so at Suffolk University in Boston. Hello, David Gallant. It's good to see you. Dachi, good to see you again. Celebrated. I'll take that. It's a, it's a Friday afternoon. I'll tell her, I guess maybe I should be inebriated, not just celebrated. <laughs> I'm but, sure um, you will. Uh, this, uh, is once... a, this will be a. <laughs> A very, a very good, uh, very good segment today. As I, I at least uh, one of our guests is is uh, well known to us, and it's very good to see her again. Well, we do want to say that we're on the Boston Podcast Network, Pod Six One Seven dot com. David Yaz is here, our producer. But you're right, the one of one of the two special guests that we have is so celebrated. She is in the upper echelon of Beatle fans, and she is an amazing woman, loved by everybody. And probably the, not probably, but she is the John Lennon authority in the world. And she's very kind and sweet. We've known her for so many years. And we welcome Jude Kessler, Jude Sutherland Kessler. Hello, Jude. How are you? I am great, Chachi and David. Thank you guys for having me on on this celebrated Friday afternoon. And <laughs> and we are, listen, I'm I'm usually a very low-key person, if not into the more John Lennon-esque realm of seeing things through a darker filter. But this new project we've got going, I am bubbling over with excitement. Well, we are too. And I will just tell people that she, Jude is the writer of the most in-depth analysis on the life of John Lennon, the biographical collection, the John Lennon series. It's supposed to be at the end of all this nine volumes I think. And since volume one's release, Jude has established herself as one of the top researchers. Anything John Lennon, she can answer. And she's here with us and she's truly a Beatle scholar. But she's here because, uh, Jude, you've just released your first ever audio book and it's volume three. She loves you with a little bit of chaptering on volume one and two. Right. And so tell us about this next phase of what you do, the audio book. Well, Last summer, I have a, a very large yard with many gardens, and they have to be hand-watered at night. And I was outside doing the boring process of this hour-long ritual, and I received a message on Facebook Messenger from a gentleman named Scott McKinley. And he said that he had just done an audiobook of Jay Bergen's great book, Lennon, the Mobster, and the Lawyer, and he sent me a five-minute clip. And I thought, oh, well, what can it hurt? I'll listen. And I was fascinated. I was riveted. This wasn't just somebody doing John Lennon. This was John Lennon out there with me watering the flowers. And the more I listened, I immediately downloaded the whole book on Audible. And the more I listened, the more I knew that he had to do an, an audiobook, She Loves You, which ugh, is a tome. When the Greeks would tell a story, they always started in what they call, and David, I'm sure you're familiar with this, in media ray. 
you start in the middle of the action. And then once you're in the action, then you go back and you pick up the motivation for that action. And so I started thinking, we've got to start John's story in media ray in the middle of the action when the Beatles are on the Royal Command performance and when they're on Sunday night at the London Palladium and when they're touring with Roy Orbison and beating Roy, they're becoming the headliners. And then they go to France, find out they're number one in America, and they just they come to America, do Ed Sullivan and Carnegie Hall and go to Miami and just take the country by storm. That's the heart of Beatlemania. So I, I very tenuously wrote to Scott and said, do you perhaps do Paul? He's like, yeah. How about Ringo? Yeah. Can you do George? Yeah. Can you do Brian? Yes, I'm a, I'm a voices expert. I can do that. Can you do Cynthia? Because that was the one I was really scared about. And oh my gosh, he's more Cynthia than Cynthia. He even has that little sibilant lisp that she has. I, the man did 183 voices that he studied and he learned and he perfected. And guys, it's time travel. It, I've always wanted so desperately to go back to the Cavern Club and to be there on those narrow boards and to be in that room and Scott takes you there it is the closest we're ever going to get. Yeah. And Jude, I'm happy to say Scott McKinley is right here with us. Hello, Scott. How are you? Hi. <laughs> Josh, it's good to meet you and David. And I'm doing fine. Thank you. Let me ask you the first question. When you reached out to Jude, did you know how many pages are in She Loves You? I did not. <laughs> I reached out just to see if she might listen to the audiobook for Jay's book and perhaps give it a, a good review or at least give me some pointers on what I'd done well with voicing John in Jay's book and where maybe I could improve a little bit. Well, since, Jay's uh, book was great, and I, I enjoyed that book. And uh and Jude, you're right. He does as many voices because when I was, I'm a first generation Beatle fan. And one of the earliest 45s I bought, I mean, I bought, I want to hold your hand first, but one of the earliest 45s I bought was Trini Lopez. I, if I had a hammer. And then I saw on the list of voices that you do, in fact, do Trini. Oh, look at, I have a Trini Lopez album here. I'm a huge Trini Lopez fan. And the fact that you do, that just shows the, the wide scope of voices that you do. So pretty talented guy, Jude, right? He it's unbelievable. And I really, I'm a sweat. There's no doubt about it. I'm a firstborn child. I, I, I'm always like, it's gotta be just like this. And Scott will tell you, I mean, we sent, you know, many things back. Like it's not Malaga, it's Malaga. We were picky. <laughs> we were so picky. And I have high expectations for the way things should be. And he met and exceeded every single expectation. Every time that he does George, I smile from ear to ear. When he says one word of Brian's before the sentence is completed, the one word, I know it's Brian. It's, it's amazing, really amazing. I just don't effuse, but I'm effusing right now. <laughs> Well, let's bring Professor David Gallant into the conversation. David, anything you'd like to add to this? Ch Chachi, I'm, 
Yeah, I mean, as was as and our producer knows, we 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 interviewed Jay Bergen, and and I'm trying to imagine that point in New York with Morris Levy and everything that was going on legally, and the lunches and what the voices would have sounded over that. And I remember telling uh, Mr. Bergen that that his writing had a voice similar to Jimmy Breslin, not realizing that he was such a huge Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill fan. To yeah. capture voices like that is is really quite quite an art that that you engage in. And I have used some excerpts recently for my class from what I think is one of the great early Beatles studies, contemporaneous studies. Michael Braun's "Love Me Do" the Beatles' progress, and so. That conforms with the early stages of She Loves You, right? Jude's work here. And so as I was looking through that, I'm trying to imagine in my head some of the voices. Now, I don't know whether you can, we don't want to just have you sort of perform for us, right? But how do you decide the way you're going to inflect differently the Brian and Tony Barrow, who are speaking sort of around the same time in the book, and I'm hearing their voices as well in Michael Braun's book, trying to imagine the voices. Now, how did you decide to study to approach, say, those two managerial voices and, and to sort of discern anything very distinctive about, say, Brian Epstein versus Tony Barrow? Well, Brian's not that hard, really. He's got a, a very soft voice, a little bit higher than I just did. But I, I've certainly heard his voice enough in different recordings and interviews that it's it's not that difficult, for me at least. At least my voice seems to be in the correct range for it. Tony Barrow it was a little harder because there aren't really any recordings that I could find of him uh, as far as interviews in the short time that I had to research and find all the actual historical voices that went with. So there were some that were easier to find than others. But for Tony, I... Specifically, just like his reaction after the day of Paul's 21st birthday, where he's like, why am I awake at, why am I awake at, you know, three in the morning? What's going on? Just trying to have a crisp sort of London tone to it, as opposed to just, I guess, I'm not quite sure, just a, one of the guys kind of thing. A little more professional, a little bit more managerial, as you said. Well, I mean, the uh, voice and inflection and, as we know, accent and pronunciation is so heavily dripping with the politics of social class in England and and what yeah. is what do you practice what do you what do you hope gets bred out of you and the Beatles being able to sort of alter their voices as necessary right to to betray the working class roots but to flatten it out to be sounding more I don't know patrician or 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 southern in England and it, it really is the way you say more administrative, because sometimes the use of the voice is is meant to put you in your place in a lot of ways, right? Or to or to defend your place. And I think that's what I believe was helping to charm the world with the Beatles was embracing as much as possible their accent, which was certainly having them firmly rooted in place, and that and that culture and identity that it comes through that comes through voice. And I'm sure. You must be very, very conscious of that when you're doing the 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 voice characterizations or the voice artistry that there's there's a world of politics behind it. Oh, absolutely. Psychology. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that the Beatles uh, were accused of enhancing the Scouse accent a little bit when they were talking with American interviewers or at least on tour, at least in the beginning during uh, the 64 tours, for instance. And uh, I think you can. See some of that in the chapter on the British embassy visit, where the people running it, uh, you know, the ambassador and uh, 
just not a good scene. No. Right. I think, but, David, you nail one of the most difficult characters in the book. If I had to pick the one that I think was the, the hardest to capture, Tony is fresh from Liverpool. He doesn't move to London until right when, when Brian writes to him as the former Disker reviewer for the Liverpool Echo and finds out he's living in London and he's working down there. Tony carries with him that scouse dropping the end of the word and the scouse isn't it, doesn't it? And so writing Tony's verbiage, you have to make sure that you always drop the G on the, on the words. You can get exactly what he said, but you have to make sure that the reader reads it with that Liverpool scouse in the backdrop of his new London acceptable accent. And Scott captured that. Exactly. Yeah. You hear when Scott brings in the scouse along with that London accent it, and it's intricate. So, some voices are a little harder to get into than others. I have to uh, find like a leading line or something like that that helps me remember what the voice sounds like in character. Normally, when I'm recording a chapter, I'll um, listen to as close of an interview as I can or banter if it's the Beatles, especially the the BBC recordings. I listened to those countless times when I was younger just uh, listening to them talking with Brian Peebles and some of the other interviews. And uh, one of the things I really appreciated about uh, the book were the interviews that were in it in particular, because it gave me a chance to try to bounce the voices off of each other a little bit and to imagine just the sheer number of times that they were asked about their haircuts. It's incredible. It, it just you'd, you'd think you'd ask it once and then you'd publish it and people would stop asking about it. But no, it's I don't know how they did it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always recall when John's being interviewed, people are saying your haircuts are un-Amer- un-American. And John replies, well, they're right. We're not American. My favorite one to George. How do you sleep with all of that hair attached? And George goes. How do you sleep with your arms and legs attached? (laughs) And and speaking of George, Scott, you know, I've had the the honor of interviewing three of the four Beatles multiple times. John was gone when I started in radio in 81. But talking to Ringo a bunch of times, Paul a bunch of times. But when I talked to George, his voice was so distinctive, so much, so distinctively Liverpudlian. I thought it was different from the other three. His voice was, was really, when I talked to him, I would get shivers. It's like, oh my God, that's, that's really George's voice. I, for me, it was different from the others in, in some ways. Oh yeah, I, I quite agree. I'd like George's voice the most. Really? I always have. It, it is much more, he didn't try to hide the accent and he, it got less as he got older, but it was still always there. And even as a, an older person, it still sounded really good. I love his voice. Scott, yeah. when you mentioned he didn't change it, I, I would always imagine George being, feeling the most comfortable in his own skin, in his own voice. Maybe because of he was perfectly settled with whatever his educational level was going to be. Paul's father had more aspirations. John's aunt had more aspirations for him. And and that ends up settling in the voice and, and, and how you represent yourself, right? And 
And I think maybe Ringo could be the most chameleon-esque if you want. I mean, why would the Dingle produce a different accent than George's from Arnold Grove? I don't know. Do you know why that would produce something different? But George always seemed more comfortable himself in his own voice. Maybe why, that's why it, it stayed so so re- remarkably consistent for you. I, I think he had more self-confidence and throughout maybe than John and Paul did in his own abilities and in his own personality. I think he was more comfortable in his own skin. And certainly I think his wit was acerbic as uh, John's ever was. Mm-hmm. And it's, I know a lot of times from what I've heard and listened to that he's kind of negative about things. I remember the bad press that he got when he made fun of the Spice Girls, for instance, and like, well, how long you know, will they last or anybody of that nature? And as a group, of course, he was right, but he didn't have to maybe put it like that. <laughs> but then, uh, I don't know. I, I just, know, his sense of humor is the best. The <laughs> neighborhoods in Liverpool are all so distinct. You have the Dingle Toxteth, and there are colloquialisms just for the Dingle Toxteth, and they don't use them outside of that realm. If you get to Allerton, you're no longer using some of those same phrases and some of that same verbiage. And if you get to Walton, which is poshier still, you're beginning to speak more of the Queen's English. Of course, that's what Mimi wanted. And if you go out to West Derby, which is spelled Derby, which is Pete Best country, now you're in a completely different accent. I mean, they're all Scouse, but to me, that was very difficult. And Scott managed that so well. And Ringo, he was very, very, sometimes Ringo sounds a little like John. Sometimes he, he's a chameleon of sorts, but I always knew it was Ringo. It is just, to me, it was the closest that I'm ever going to come to being whisked back to 1963, 64 and being able to be there for the last night in the Cavern Club. And the very first time that Cynthia ever got to come to John's concert as a wife, they finally decided, let this girl out of hiding and let her join her husband. And the danger that the two of them felt when they moved into Emperor's Gate up on that sixth flight of stairs and those fans were crowding the stairs and John's beaten to death every night coming home from work. Scott just brought that to light for me. I sat there with goosebumps the whole time I was listening to him. I, it's hard to explain, but you'll see. It, he makes magic. Well, yeah. I, I, I will tell you, I think that's my favorite part of the Beatles story around the time they came to America. Yeah. So I, I, did, I do enjoy that part of it. But Scott, a couple yes. of questions. Are you a, you a first-generation Beatles fan? Are you a Beatles fan? And... When when did you hear the Beatles cartoons and even Yellow Submarine? What did you think of the voices they used in those projects? Well, that's a great question. I'm a little young to be a first generation. I was more or less like a baby when they came to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I decided, I remember announcing to my folks that I was, you know, I, I think the Beatles are my favorite group. And my dad saying, oh, I think I just heard that they just broke up, which would have been 1970, that he mentioned that. And I'm like, oh. But I, I, I did grow up watching the Beatles cartoon before then. And I liked the animation, but the voices didn't sound exactly what I would have expected. 
But that's where I first heard Do You Want to Know a Secret, which when I was a kid was my favorite song. I adored that song so much. It just was such a, a happy tune. And, and then later, I finally did get to see the uh, Yellow Submarine movie about 74, I think it was on TV. And I thought the voices were pretty good. I was really amazed when I don't know the actor's name who did Paul came. Well, it's up, fellas. <laughs> oh, OK. That sounds like Paul. John sounded very intellectual, but not quite as much like Paul. Or, I'm sorry, as John. I think that's what's the actor's uh, voice actor's name. John Cleves, I think. Something like that. I know the actor they had playing George was actually the brother of the actor that they thought they were hiring. But I don't know how much he sounded like George. But the guy who played Ringo did pretty good Ringo. And for a lot of Americans, I'm sure, uh, or maybe internationally, maybe that voice resonated as more of a Ringo voice than Ringo's. Well, Professor, I'd like to do my Ringo imitation from the Beatle cartoons, if I may. Go right ahead. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Wait a minute. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something like that. I do it better when I'm not on mic. But Jude, is it, isn't it true that the makers of A Hard Day's Night were thinking we should have American voices do the, uh, instead of using their own voices because people wouldn't understand the... Uh... What in the heck were they thinking? You know, <laughs> I mean, that's what we went, that's what everyone wanted to hear. Right. Every, you know, we were all trying to speak Scouse. In Louisiana, we were trying to speak Scouse. We'd go around saying, see you later, Lord. I, I tape recorded the movie uh, Hard Day's Night when it was on once, and it wasn't played very frequently, and I played that to death. So that was one of the ways that I developed uh, the different Beatle voices. Yeah, I mean, well, they, they I'm a, yeah, when I'm a first-generation Beatles fan, and I tell you, I saw them on the Ed Sullivan show, but when I, back then in like June or July, seeing them on the big screen was just mind-boggling. It, it changed me even again after watching them on the Ed Sullivan show. Professor, do you want to add anything to all this? Well, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit curious physically how a voice actor modulates the muscles or the glottal muscles, or do, do you, do you, do you take some certain type of liquid if you're going to do a stretch of John or Ringo, or do you want make sure you have a little bit of 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 a cold before you do George, who <laughs> sounds always a little bit more phlegmatic as in phlegm a little bit. Just uh, you, you, you wash out a beetle when you, before you get to the next one. Is that it? When you're holding up the water, how do, how does, how does one do that? I, I had a couple of points during there. Uh, yes, you have to stay well hydrated. Otherwise your voice will dry out or you'll get mucusy kind of sound. I was going to ask if you'd had any other narrators ever interviewed or if you were familiar with any other beetle narrators. But you might consider uh, perhaps looking some of them up. But cause some of them are quite good. I have a friend. Like Martin Jarvis. Uh, Scott, uh, I'm sure you've uh, maybe seen the YouTube uh, video of uh, of uh, Simon Pegg, who does the party trick of four Beatles in your mouth. And uh, he'll he'll do each of the Beatles' accents uh, uh, talking about where it lives in the mouth. So John lives at the back, Paul lives at the top, Ringo lives at the front, and George lives... No, hang on. It was it was in terms of doing Beatles impressions. So when you want to do John, you talk like this, it's sort of up there. But when you do Paul, it's up there like that, you know, it's sort of much more... 
And then when you do George, it's sort of over here. And Ringo's right at the front like that, you see. So, you know, I, I, want, I was curious how you work your vocal muscles to sort of uh, uh, hit every beetle as no perfect as you can. Yeah. You, you'll find yourself doing that. But if I, I get too caught up with thinking about it, then it doesn't work right. I always have to be able to hear what I'm saying so it sounds like you're hearing it. Because whenever you play back your own voice, you sound a little bit different. And so uh, you stay well hydrated. I always listen to the voices as a guide vocal before I go in and start practicing one of the lines in the book. And I will normally pause when I go into a new voice and then remove the pauses I'm editing. But I set myself a challenge for a couple of them where I did, for instance, the Beatles' uh, 1963 Flexi, the Christmas Flexi. And I managed to do it in one take, all the voices, because I'd heard it so many times, I more or less had it memorized. And, and I knew singing. exactly you how each voice singing. was. All that singing. Well, the good King Wenceslas, something without a, a copyright, <laughs> that kind of singing. <laughs> And we will avoid doing the yesterday stuff in the 65 Flexi later. But it was really fun just trying to interrupt each other using different voices at the same time. That's my challenge. And I tried to do the Beatle interviews the same way. And then I realized how much fun it was just to do the interviewer. And so that was half the battle was trying to boil like 50 different interviewers down to just five or six basic models that I could modulate just a little bit from uh, voice to voice. We're going to take a minute right now to tell you about another podcast that you should definitely check out. It's called Past Tens, a top 10 time machine. That's right, Chachi. Tens, as in T-E-N-S. Your host, David Yaz, and the chartmeister, Michael Milwolves, travel back in time to revisit the top 10 hits on the Billboard charts on a given day in the past. Sometimes the songs hold up nicely, other times they make you cringe, and that's when comedy and chaos ensue. On past tense. You know, David, I think the best episode was when they went back to 1964 because the list was packed with Beatles songs and also because those bozos, Milton Dave, respectively, had the good sense to have us on that episode to school them on all things Beatles. I agree, Chachi. That was a fantastic episode, probably their best. But also check out the episode where I filled in for Milt. It spared the audience the usual allotment of milk fart jokes. You'll have to listen to it to what other types of bodily function jokes are put in. I had no idea that you were a guest host. I feel offended and betrayed. But I have to admit, for a couple of knuckleheads, these guys put on a fantastic show. It's past tens to a top ten time machine. Find it anywhere you get your podcasts or visit timemachinepod.com. That's timemachinepod.com. From pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. You're listening to Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. What I found interesting a couple of times is, is maybe through the anthology series and other interviews, the Beatles themselves trying to take on the voices of some of their colleagues, whether they were trying to uh, mimic Brian or George yeah. Martin, or even if we're talking about that birthday party era, someone like Bob Wooler who was also very famous for his voice in Liverpool. And even before that, the way they tried to take on the Welsh of Alan Williams. And I don't know if you've, if you've parlayed any of those voices, uh, Scott, to Bob Wooler or George Martin. I, or... I tried to as close as I could. Some of them I don't have off the top of my head. So if I try to recreate it now, I'm not quite sure how well I'll sound or good I'll sound. Mm -hmm. But I knew that he was Welsh. And I studied, so I, I researched a little bit of Welsh. 
I like Dylan Thomas, for instance, a uh, very famous Welsh poet, and of course, Richard Burton. The interview you had to do because we or had Bob that Wooler, length, yeah. Yeah, that lengthy interview with Bob Wooler. So I did find clips of Bob Wooler talking. That that was at least easier to do. And running the voices by Jude just to help clarify of like, is this close? Is this anything? One of the things I did for this book in particular was to very focus on what the actual voices sounded like by matching those as close as I could as opposed to doing just regional accents. And then I also talked with people from the UK who also narrate audiobooks and do audio drama. People like uh, Peter Kenny, who also narrated Ken McNabb's book, I think. Yes, yes. And in the end, Peter Kenny narrated that. And I asked him about what kind of accent that he would use. And he grew up near Liverpool, so he was very comfortable doing that. But for me, when I passed, I'm like, well, I'm doing a book on John Lennon or I'm I'm doing a Liverpool accent. And you're like, well, that's not Liverpool. That's John Lennon. And I said, <laughs> OK, then that's that's close enough. That's where I was heading. But I don't know if I need to get more narrow than that if I'm already hit it. So I, I would probably really want to study Liverpudlian uh, a lot more if I uh, was to actually just try to do, uh, let's say, a novel based on non-historic characters from that area, as opposed to just doing very specific people. So I guess One I'm of my of, favorite uh, ones, though, Scott, that you did was the conversation between Sid Bernstein and Brian when Sid walks him down and says, Carnegie Hall was so successful. How about Madison Square Garden? That is a moment to me. And I know it was touching for you as well. Yep. Well, Brian, we actually did it. I just, I'd have to read it a little bit more, but I, I saw Sid Bernstein at a couple Beatle Fests and his voice sort of resonated with me. He was the first guest of the first fest that I ever saw. And we were pretty close to uh, the very front of the auditorium. He came in and the very first thing he did was tell us the location of the actual famous race pizza. <laughs> I don't remember which, and I don't remember if it was the same one that Asner talks about in Elf. But I'll tell you, a bunch of years ago, Sid left a voicemail on my phone, five minutes, and it's just brilliant. It's legendary. And I play it on my show as is. And what a voice and what a gentleman he was. But let yes. me, and you mentioned BBC, Scott, and there's yeah. a, uh, this might be right up your alley because there's one of them where he's be, they're being introduced by a DJ and there's some interplay and they ask him, they ask the DJ to imitate James Mason. Can you do your very famous James Mason impersonation? Next song I'd like to introduce is Jill uh, Lewis. What was it? Sha la 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 la. <laughs> yeah, Chains. Yes. yes. No, not Chains. Oh, Baby It's You. Baby It's You. Yes, yes. yes. you're going to see is it's Baby It's You. <laughs> Lennon cackling and giggling about it. <laughs> Can you do Mickey Mouse? Yeah. So when so Scott, when people come up to you and they and they say, "Do Ringo, do do Paul, do George," are you able to, or do you have a process? Like if I said to you, I have a process, but some of them are easier than others. So John Lennon, I can more or less just drip into or dip into, as it were, a little bit more quickly than some of the others, just because I've been practicing. You see, is very important. Whereas George is a little bit more Liverpudlian, a little bit back back of the throat, a little bit on, I don't know. 
It's and then uh, for Paul, it's just normally one of the lines from the Christmas. Oh, I don't know. Ow! Birthday cards and presents and presents, all those things I'm trying to remember. Your fans have seen to that. <laughs> so let me ask you guys, because you were both at Beetlefest, were you, recently? Yes. I, and how how did that go? Oh, Pat. It went great. Yeah. Gosh. I hadn't been the... there for a few years. And it's the first time I've gone to this new hotel in Jersey City where the waterfront view is like, Jesus, you can't get closer to the, uh, like, the Freedom Tower than if you were, well, it's a, yeah, three blocks away or something. It's so close. So many people. It was back to the old days. And by that, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, it was jammed you couldn't get on the elevators people were everywhere people were hugging each other it was so good these these last three years have been very difficult especially for people that have autoimmune concerns you know i spent two years in the house and it was just great it everybody was so excited to be there and it's that i think chicago is going to be great too people are excited to be out and about again well, you, you're you're yeah. one of the highlights of the show. I know that uh, people love you, Jude, for everything you've done, and and you're so kind to everybody. So I'm glad it went well. Let me ask you a, a, a different question, a little bit off the track here, Jude. Did you see the new May Pang movie last weekend, and what did you think? Absolutely loved it. It is a pop up book of a very personal scrapbook. I mean, you open the scrapbook, and these images begin to pop up. And it carries you through this very inspiring relationship between this woman who reached out to a man who was struggling and restored his faith in himself that he could write music, that he was still a creative genius, that he still mattered, he was still important, and restored his relationship with his child and his relationship with his ex-wife and made him, I mean, May would hang her head down so that long hair would fall in her face. And she would whisper to John, this is so-and-so coming up so because he wouldn't remember. And this is what he does. And then John would look the genius. And she just bolstered his confidence in himself and gave him the impetus to come back and do what he did in those last five years of his life. And she was always important to John. This myth that it's a lost weekend is so untrue. I mean, at the together time is 18 months, but they continue to have a relationship for the rest of John's life. And she was what Cynthia was to him in the 60s, which was his place of peace and confidence. May was in, in the 70s. She, she, gave him that knowledge that he still was important. And I just love the film. It's absolutely, everybody should see it. Yeah, I, I got to see it twice. And we had May in Boston. Uh, we hosted her in Boston. And uh, it was an emotional film, tearful, happy, seeing John come back to life. Certainly didn't make Yoko look good in a lot of ways. But also one thing, if when when she talks about when, John went back to Yoko and, you know, she went and met him for his dentist appointment. Right. And she said he looked different. Yeah. So I, I wonder what that was. Cause there are rumors and I don't want to spread rumors, but 
what was different about him after she after he went back to Yoko? That's what she I says that his eyes were red round and that he appeared dazed. That's what she says. So take from that what you will. But she begged him not to go, begged him not yeah. to go. And history is what it is. We can't change what it is. But I will say the moment that Yoko decided to send May with him on the lost weekend was a turning point in John's life. And it, it healed a lot of wounds for him. It was great seeing him being having fun around movie stars. I mean, it, it, yes. I think it it gave you a vision of John as like he's just a regular guy in a lot of ways. I know that's he's not a regular guy, but nonetheless, he's a human being and having fun. And Yoko, I mean, I mean, uh, May wanted him to reconnect with Paul. I mean, where would we be today if he didn't go back to Yoko? But I hate the what ifs, but what if? But nonetheless, it's a great film, The Lost Weekend, right? It was great. It was really great. And I, w I was listening to Scott, and I wanted to insert this because there's so many things that, that Scott does to bring John to life that I didn't even know that people knew. I thought in my obsessive study that I knew it, but I didn't think other people noticed it. Like when you ask John a question, he always says, nah, no. It's his thing. Nah, nah, no. I, I didn't know that everyone knew that. Scott nailed it. He watched so many of John's mannerisms. You can even hear him talking with gum in his mouth because you know how John obsessively chews gum. You can hear the gum as he's talking. And he just really got into this. But Chachi, I think what we forget when we get into the genius, like you said, John's not a regular guy, is that he is so a regular guy. He is, he doubts himself more than any of the other Beatles. He, in this, I'm in 1965 in Shades of Life Part 2 that I'm working on now, they've just met Elvis. That took three months to research and another three months to write. Back into the limousine after meeting Elvis, John says, where's Elvis? When he sent us that telegram, he wasn't there. When he sent those gifts via Colonel Parker, he wasn't there. And even tonight, his body was there, but he wasn't there. Where's Elvis? And what John is really saying, because he's been all night long pretending to be Fritz Fossbender, his Peter Sellers persona, he's been talking like Peter Sellers, there you are, and this is cozy, and doing all this stuff, long lives the king, and he is hiding behind this persona. What he's really asking is, where is John Lennon? Because John didn't show up for him that night. He couldn't connect. He couldn't tell Elvis what he wanted to say. In so many ways, he's an ordinary guy. And you see that in the movie with May, how he leans on her for support. You see it in the way that Scott verbalizes him, how he needs Cynthia. To, he calls her all the time to bolster him up. He is all of us. He doubts himself probably more than any of the other Beatles. And well, I, I think we see that strikingly if we're moving away from Elvis. I'd, I'd love to hear Scott sometime do both the famous limousine ride, the famous taxi ride with John and Bob Dylan from Eat the Document. If he can do both of those voices, because John, again, is sort of bluffing through and joking with Dylan, who's vulnerable and drunk and what have you. 
because he was always both very admiring of of someone like Dylan and, and insecure at the same time. And it was kind of a mutual respect, fear, insecure <laughs> kind of relationship on on both sides. And perhaps if 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 John had survived, he might have been in the Wilburys. Uh, but he never really connected as closely with Dylan as George did over time. But I don't know, uh, uh, Scott. What what do you? I'm sure you've maybe researched or seen that famous. That famous clip that is now available on the internet that used to be sort okay. of a holy grail of who can find it. But I don't know <laughs> if you've had a chance to, I hate to use the term play around with it, but I think artists do. It's like clay. You play around with it before you, before the, the angel comes out of the marble, right? Yeah. You, you play with voices and things. And I don't really know that I used to do Dylan all that much. And which Dylan it would be another question, too, since uh, his voice changed so many times. The trickster. Yeah. You'd never guess yeah. Lay Lady Lay was by him. And like, oh, I quit smoking. And that's why it's different. Like, okay, <laughs> you say so. But uh, during 65, when he's still in his talking like this kind of phase, the blonde on blonde uh, kind of year, and, uh, I don't know. It's. That'd be an interesting conversation in the, in the, in the car, John. I don't really understand. I hear you're backing them very bigly, Bob. <laughs> backing them very bigly. <laughs> and, and you, just a couple of quick thought, final thoughts on the May Pang movie. I love the fact that at the end, she says John loved Cynthia and he communicated with Cynthia. But the fact that May became, became good friends with Cynthia was great. And then Julian at the end with a hugging and it was just a, it was very sad. I mean, I, I saw it twice and it brought tears to my eyes both times. But boy, there was a ray of hope there in May during that time with John. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the bond is that anyone that loves John, we're a family. You know, we accept him for who he is. There are good days. There are some very bad days. And you never know which day it's going to be. But if you love someone, you love them not because, but although, and and they did that, as did Cynthia. And I think that was their bond, that they accepted him as Stu did for who he, who he was, not who he should be. Yeah, and it was very sad every time Julian would try to call. So you got to go see the movie to see what we're talking about. But can't change the past. You can only move forward, and he, we are where we are. Uh, simplistic to say, but nonetheless, Professor, we're slowly running out of time. Anything you want to add? Any final questions for our two fantastic guests? Well, well, I don't know about the questions. Just that, um, uh, a great appreciation uh, for what it is that that they've doing. Obviously, what what Jude has been doing all these years, but also sort of having Scott come into that world. As I had mentioned, sometimes in in reading a lot of a lot of texts, you try to imagine the voices of those who surround the Beatles and, and knowing that what they said was very important to, to the group, whether it was to help them or, or if they were against them. If we think of if Scott's voice of say, Boris Levy, someone against uh, people thinking about that one, Chachi. So it's, uh, it, it's great shot, to sort of imagine shot. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that it's, it's great to imagine that now the with the, with the access to audio versions of, of these texts really sort of, they're not just uh, they're not just texts anymore. They're 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 mini dramas. I mean, this could bring back radio drama for crying out loud. It's fantastic. We were so excited because at the fest there was a group of of Beatle age guys. I mean, they were nineteen, twenty, twenty two, 
who performed, who could have been the Beatles in 1963. They're called the Black Ties. Oh, yeah. And they're, you know, from Jersey and, and New York. Fabulous. And they wrote two great original songs. And I asked them if we could use those songs for the last night in the Cavern Club. They're snippets. You see it from Ringo's perspective and then from Paul's perspective and Brian's perspective and Bob Wooler's perspective and Ringo's and John. And the music is interwoven, the music of the Black Ties. Same thing on the UK tour of 1963. Another one of their original songs is woven into the UK tour. And it just pops to life when these guys that are the same age as the Beatles, the same sound as the Beatles, and yet so fresh. It, I think very honestly, I, people will say that lady's just completely crazy. But I really think it was a God thing. I think all of this was meant to be. And Chachi, all... I, I, I just want to add, Jude, we like crazy. Crazy is good. And if, uh, you mentioned that Scott, it, it, his interpretation of Cynthia, there's one female voice that my students, we linger, we linger, linger a long time over this clip from the anthology. And it's Kathy from the Cavern, where she talks about the ultimate early success of the Beatles having a number one hit. And the sadness that has to come with that at the same time. And it's her voice, the way it, it speaks of the cavern and that whole phenomenon of youth culture in, in, in the city at the time. I don't know, Scott, if you could give us a little Kathy from the cavern. Oh, <laughs> I remember you've seen the clip. Yes, uh, I do. Yeah. It's, it resonates so much with just the voice and what they, and, and what they meant to the, to the row of gales in the front who were all crying and not cheering because they knew what it meant. Beatles were as soon as they got popular. I don't, they're just, they're not here anymore. They're not ours. They're not coming home. Don't want to share the Beatles. Oh, I, something like that. Thank you. No, because very, we, very we, we linger on that so much. It's a great sort of chachi, not to steal your rounding off point, but it's a great place to, to end here because of that. The way that that at every step of success, you you have to break things along the way. Right. And so you, you had to break that that connection. As Ringo said, it's true. You have to go to London if you're going to be successful in that in that business. But we do linger on on that moment because that voice says so much about the importance of place. Right. And I think that that's fantastic how you're recreating that, that the voices represent that time. So it brings the time back and it brings the place back. And it builds all the architecture that, that Jude has constructed in her work. I yes. appreciate it so much. I can't tell you. I, I, if anybody had said, what was your end game? What would you like to have happened? Do you want a movie made out of this? What would you like? I didn't know, but I know now. And the answer is for Scott McKinley to read it and bring it to life because it, I just get so emotional. It has changed everything. It is the time machine I always wanted. So, Well, that's a great compliment, Gosh. Scott. Yes, it is. I mean, my, my vision of the book very quickly was I don't like it to sound like somebody's reading a book out loud. You'll fall asleep so quickly if it's a dry reading. And I like to have the voices approximated enough so that you'd be clued in like, oh, I know that voice. I remember that character. And if it sounds like the real person, even if it isn't a dead on, like, I, I'm not an impressionist, just to um, like, oh, OK, that sounds like John walking in. And uh, by the end of the book, you're 
you're really invested. You're listening to it. It's experiential as opposed to just an audio book. Yeah. And you know what? I enjoy audio books while I'm driving. People love it that way. So it's it's great. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, Jude, look what I just pulled out of my uh, collection. <laughs> Some people think I'm wearing a beetle wig, but no, that's not the case. We're talking to our dear friend, Jude Sutherland Kessler. And I do got a, I always do a shout out to the unsung hero, Jude, Randy Kessler. He uh, is. He is. He, that man has worked his buns off. In fact, I think he slept just a few hours in the last two days because we've been trying to dot every I and cross every T legally, technically. And we were worried, oh, my goodness, this isn't going to happen. But we, right before we went on air, like one minute before we went on air, we got the notice that said you have been approved and it's going to be released to all audiobook sites. So, phew! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's my Ringo (laughs) invitation. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're here with Jude Sutherland Kessler, and I will thoroughly recommend that you get the new Audio drama, they're calling it, right? The audio version of She Loves You, Volume 3, from the world-renowned Beatles of the John Lennon Authority, Jude Sutherland Kessler. You can go to John, johnlennonseries.com for more info. It's on Audible and all kinds of audio platforms that you just said, Jude? Yes. And Chirp, what else, Scott? All of the various platforms. It'll, well, it'll be uh, first, I believe, on Spotify. And then on Audible and Amazon and iTunes, as well as uh, Hoopla for library patrons and uh, Books a Million, I think it's available. I, it, well, we'll we'll see which ones it, it clears. But if you uh, like to read audiobooks and you get them from somewhere besides Amazon, hey, you, you should be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry. A man of a thousand Beatle voices, Scott McKinley. And you can find Scott at McKinleyCO.com. Is that correct, Scott? That is correct. Yeah, correct. (laughs) There you go. Beatles professor David Gallant, thank you once again for joining us. We thank thank you, you, Scott McKinley. We thank you, of course, Jude Sutherland Kessel, the beloved Jude, known and beloved in the Beatle world from the upper echelon of Beetle collectors and Beetle experts, they all love Jude, and we do too. So thank you all for joining us on Get Back to the Beatles. We are produced by David Yeh as of the Boston Podcast Network, pod617.com. And if you want to hear my show, New England's Breakfast with the Beatles, heard every weekend, Saturday and Sunday, in three New England states and all over the world. On behalf of myself, Beatles professor David Gallant, David Yaz, we thank Jude for being here today. And Scott, a pleasure to meet you. You are now in the Beatle world. You will be at Beatle Fest for the rest of your life. (laughs) Welcome to the club. And we appreciate you bringing uh, Jude, you bringing Scott to the forefront here because he he's fantastic. He demonstrated his talent right here. So you made a great choice, Jude. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. I always love being with you, David, Chachi. You're the best. Thank you, guys. Love you, guys. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Jude. Thank you. Thank you. See you all next time. And thank you for listening to Get Back to the Beatles. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.